Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. For this day represents a special day to us. Easter Sunday morning, a long time ago, you reached down and you raised your son from the dead. He was laid in a borrowed tomb. There was no life in him. And you resurrected him to prove to the world there is a way of salvation and that you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord God. Mm. Lord, you are good. You are so good. Nobody in their right mind would resist this. Such a wonderful message. Lord, let it sink in deep this morning. Father, I pray for every listener here this morning. Lord, as we go into your word, as we look at Calvary, as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, as we look at that resurrection morning, Lord, let it sink deep. Stir in the hearts of your people. Stir by your spirit in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our children are dismissed to Children's Church. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Paul will give you a Bible. Traditionally at Calvary Chapel, we go, not traditionally, every Sunday, we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. But we're taking a break uh, last Sunday and today to give special emphasis on Jesus' death and resurrection. Because this, this is the heartbeat of Christianity. This, this is the cornerstone. We were praying before church this morning, and at 9 o'clock this morning, the team was. And we started talking about, you know, because Jesus rose from the grave, our, our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. But we also thought about, hey, without Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we wouldn't have our friendships. We are here this morning. You are here at Calvary Chapel Irma this morning. Millions of believers around the world are at their churches this morning because Jesus rose from the grave. Amen? Amen. I'd like to read to you Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. As we begin our message this morning, Matthew 28, 1 through 6 says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Bam! They were out. They didn't know what to think. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, because they were scared. And we're going to talk about that. Their world had been rocked on that Friday and Saturday. They were scared that morning. It says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. What? Does what does the events of this weekend that took place long ago, what does it represent? Two things, my friend. First, it represents the truth of Christianity. It represents the truth of the Bible. But what it is, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to salvation to all men. 
That's what this weekend represents. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ on that weekend is a statement to all continents, to all people throughout the world. This is God's way of salvation. And it's free. It's a free gift. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to do works. You don't have to do anything but receive and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And you're going to get to partake of the things that we talk about this morning. But unfortunately, many people don't see it that way. Many people don't see Christianity the way the believer does. I know I didn't. I know I didn't for 20 years. Like, those religious people, what are they doing every Sunday morning? It, wasn't, it didn't dawn on me till the Lord opened my heart and opened my mind, and I saw the truth of Christianity, too, that I, I became a Christian. I want to give you a couple quotes from some people that have been, have been asked about their faith. George Clooney. George Clooney, when asked about his faith, he says, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't believe in God. All I know is that as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. That was what George Clooney said when he was asked about his faith in Christianity and the Bible. Brad Pitt. You know, Brad Pitt was raised a Baptist. He was, if, you, if you go read his bio, he was raised a Baptist. Later, latter teenage years, uh, the family switched to a Pentecostal church. But recently, Brad Pitt was asked about his faith. And he says, I'm probably 20% atheist, 80% agnostic. I don't think anyone really knows. You'll either find out or not when you get there. Until then, there's no point in thinking about it. And unfortunately, that's the... I felt that way at one time in my life before I became a Christian. You know, I, I ain't worried about it. We'll find out when we get there. That's a very fatal mistake. That's a huge mistake. Charles Darwin said this. You know, I don't agree with Charles Darwin on a lot of things. But this is one statement I agree with Charles Darwin on. Charles Darwin said, the question whether there exists a creator and ruler of the universe and this has been answered in the affirmative by the highest intellects that ever lived. Even Charles Darwin, who wrote The Origin of Species, The Descent of Man, knew that there was a creator. He knew there was a creator. So people in life, they dance around, they entertain it, they think about it. But they don't grasp it. They don't grasp the truth of Christianity. They don't understand their sin and that they need forgiveness. And they don't understand that Jesus offers you the greatest gift. And that's eternal life. How long are you going to be gone for when you leave this life? Forever. There's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. But God didn't make it. He didn't complicate things. It's not difficult to understand. He made it very simple that a five-year-old, my children understand at a very early age, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he rose from the grave. And what you and I celebrate this weekend is a testimony to the truth of Christianity. I like what J.C. Ryle says. J.C. Ryle says, except a man be born again, he will wish one day he had never been born at all. My friend, I say this in love and truth. Um, there's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. There's nothing, 
not your family, not your life, not your career. There's nothing more important than, than you being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning, I want to go back up on the mountain. We, we referred to, started two weeks ago, we referred to the events of Calvary and the resurrection as the mountain. Because it is. It's the peak of Christianity. It's, it's the apex. It's the apex. Everything that took place on this weekend, that millions of believers around the world are just like us, sitting in church and looking at the scriptures and, and taking in what Christ said. We want to go up on the mountain because what happened on that mountain, it defines Christianity. It defines Christianity. And to fully get the impact, remember what we read in Matthew 28, 1 through 6? What were the women? They were afraid. They were scared. They were going up there with spices because their world had been turned upside down. It was a very, uh, it wasn't a, a, a happy early morning on that first Easter Sunday. It was very gloomy. They were going to go prepare the body of the one they had followed for three years. They were going to go finish it finish what they had started on Friday. Because remember, it was Saturday was the Sabbath. And by, by Sabbath law, they couldn't do nothing with the body. They had to wait till Sunday morning. So let's, to understand the resurrection and the glorious truth of it, let's start in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? He says, let this cup pass from me, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. What's the cup? The cup was not the cross. The cup was not what Jesus was going to endure. The cup is a symbol in the Old Testament of God's wrath. And Jesus was preparing himself, bracing himself to take on the wrath of God for our sin, including the separation. He was going to pay the price for our sin at Calvary. So he, the Bible says he's sweating these great drops of blood. He was under intense, uh, just an, an, an emotional intensity that no man has ever known because of the suffering that he was fixing to partake of and God's wrath he was going to take on. So they arrest him. Jesus is arrested. He stands before Ananias, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the elders, and Pilate and Herod. He probably got no sleep that night. In a 12-hour span, that Thursday evening to early Friday morning, we believe that, um, I mean, not we believe, the scripture testifies that uh, Jesus went through five trials. He went through five trials before the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin and before those guys. He was blindsided. You know what blindsided means? It means they put a, they put a sack over your head so you can't see and they start punching him. And they say, all right, if you're the Christ, prophesy. Who hit you? They mocked him. They, they ridiculed him. Uh, they, they spit on him. It was a very rough night. Then he's given over to the hands of the Roman soldiers. And he's whipped. He's beaten. He's scourged to near death. And then the processional, the processional to Calvary, where he's, he's taken up. What kept him going? What kept him going on the Via Della Rosa, we like to call it? Us. Yes, it was us. He had us on his mind. He was having to go to Calvary. So he gets up to Calvary. He's crucified. 
placed on the cross for our sin. And I want to briefly go over the seven statements that he made. The first statement we'll have up on the screen, Luke 23, 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Each statement Christ made on the cross represents a truth. It represents the gospel. It represents what he offers to all men. And his first statement, Father, forgive them, for they didn't know what they were doing, it, it speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of forgiveness. The very ones that Jesus, the very ones, the very Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross, he's hanging on the cross, and he's like, Father, please forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing. For the Roman soldiers, it was just another day on the job. That was their job, Roman, to crucify but Christ prays for them. That's the heartbeat of Christianity. That not only does God forgive us, but we forgive others. That's what Christianity has to offer, is forgiveness. And Jesus, every message, every word he spoke, it speaks of that. The second statement, Luke 23, 43 says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What is this statement? This, this statement that Jesus spoke on the cross speaks two things. One, it speaks about heaven. John chapter 14, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also, you believe in the Father, believe also in me. My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place. This message, this statement he spoke speaks of the truth and the reality of heaven. Heaven is a real place. The Bible teaches there's three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. The second heaven is that of the universe. But then the Bible speaks of a place called the third heaven, the abode of God. We don't know its precise location, but we're told it's above. And this place is paradise. That word paradise, when Jesus uses the statement, it's a place of no disease, no sickness, no death. And that's what Christianity has to offer. That's the truth of Christianity. The third statement found in John 19, 26. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, he says to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. What is Christ saying in this statement? First off, he's taking care of mom. He's doing a good thing. He's taking care of mom, which that's all of us should do is take care of our moms. But here's what's, here's what's taking place. A change is taking place in the heart of Mary. Jesus is going from being her son to being her Lord. And Jesus, even in his suffering on the cross, he's looking down at his mother and he's taking care of mom. What does that teach you? What does this statement teach you and I about God? It teaches us this, that our God is a compassionate God. He's a loving God. He's a caring God. You know, whatever you're going through, whatever difficulties you faced, whatever heartbreaks or, or things that's happened in your life, our God is a God that heals and he cares for people and he loves people and he shows people compassion. And that's what he's doing here at the cross. He's taking care of his mom because I'm telling you right now, she is reeling. She is reeling Imagine seeing your child going through that kind of suffering. How would you feel? Uh, Simeon the prophet in Luke chapter 2, when they went to dedicate Jesus at the temple, he tells Mary 
prophetically. He says, a sword will pierce your soul. A sword will pierce your soul. She was hurting. And our gracious, loving, and compassionate God is taking care of his mother. The fourth statement. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know what Christianity offers? Right there. Jesus paid the price for your sin. See, you and I, man's greatest issue is his sin. What do we do with our sin and, and, and our immoral thoughts and breaking God's commandments? What do we do with our sin? Because we all have this thing inside of us called a conscience. And when we break God's commandments, we have this guilt on the inside. What do we do with it? Christianity answers that question. Jesus paid the price. He took on God's wrath so that we could be forgiven. So it's like this. When the person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, God takes, Christ, takes our filthy rags, places it on Christ, takes his righteousness, and places it on us. And so he, he, he paid the price for our sins. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We believe that him and the Father experienced a separation as the Father turned his head and poured out on Jesus the punishment that was coming to us. It was placed on him. The fifth statement, John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all these things have, had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scriptures, he says, I am thirsty. What does this statement say to us? What, 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 is, what is God saying to us in this verse? And he's saying this, that Jesus Christ was broken and poured out for us. He gave everything. Yes, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And in being 100% man, he experienced the pains of this life. And he experienced all everything that took place on that Good Friday. He, he says, I am thirsty. He thirsted, I believe, he, he, he thirsted at Calvary because one day he knew that you and I would be thirsty. See, without Jesus going through what he did, we would not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us today. He had to come to earth, make the sacrifice for sin, rise from the grave, establish the new covenant, and then after the new covenant is established, and you and I receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he gives us his Holy Spirit. It's like, it's, it's, it's like refreshing water. So he, he thirsted because one day you and I would thirst. We would have this deep longing on the inside of our hearts where we would be hungry spiritually for something real, something more, something eternal. And that's what he gives us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, but it would not have happened if he hadn't thirsted first by making his sacrifice at Calvary. The sixth statement, John 19, 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. What happened there at Calvary? The sacrifice was complete. Atonement had been made. In the Greek, just telestai, paid in full. Our debt, your debt, your sin debt that we'd all be held accountable for, was paid at Calvary completely and forever, past, present, and future. A believer in Jesus Christ is forgiven of everything in the past, everything in the present, and everything in the future. 
Doesn't mean grace is a license to sin. Romans 6 1 says, uh, it, is, it is not. It, it, it is not. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace takes us out of the old life and brings us into the new life. But it is finished. The work of Calvary, the work that um, he, he established and planned before he, the foundation of the world was finished. The seventh statement found in Luke 23, 46. Love this one. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says, having said this, he breathed his last. What's taking place here? The eternal son was committing his spirit to the eternal father. Jesus trusted in the father. He was committed to the father's plan. What does this statement mean to me and you today? It means this. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy and, and God is faithful. And you can give your heart to him and you can give your life to him and he will not let you down. That's what Christianity has to offer. That's what this weekend represents. That we serve a faithful God. Jesus went into that deep, dark place called Calvary. Knowing that he had a faithful father that would take care of him. Give your life to him. Give your heart to him. He's faithful. Jesus trusted in him at the cross, and so can we. But notice that statement. It says, and having said this, it says he breathed his last. And if you go to the other gospel, it says when he breathed his last, it says the veil of the temple was torn. The veil of the temple was torn. What's going on with the veil? This veil of the temple being torn at Jesus' death. Here's the deal. You and I, we need what's behind that veil. You and I need desperately from the picture of the Old Testament uh, temple, you and I needed what was behind that veil. And what was behind that veil was the presence of God. It was the presence of God. And it was also the holiness of God. You know, we need God's holiness. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. I think about the priest. The priest would go, the priest, before they went into the Holy of Holies and to make a, a sacrifice, they had to make sure every single sin they committed was confessed and atoned for. In other words, they had to have everything in line. They had to have everything right before they went into the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice over the ark. And if they didn't get everything right, they would be struck dead. They would be struck dead by the holiness of God. That's why uh, they would tie a rope. They would tie a rope around the waist of the priest or around his ankle and let him go into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice. And if something did happen, if something did happen and he died, God struck him dead maybe because he didn't, he didn't have all his sins confessed or everything wasn't atoned for, those outside wouldn't have to go in after him because they would get struck down too. So they'd just pull him out with a rope. That's, what, that's, that's how serious... That's how serious it was. And you and I, there's nothing new under the sun. The Old Testament, they needed a sacrifice. Well, guess what? You and I need a sacrifice today. We need a sacrifice for our, for our sin. Atonement needs to be made for our sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, talking about us. It says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, 
which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. What a beautiful picture from the Old Testament and the New Testament that Christ is our lamb. He is our lamb. Look, it says it, says it there in verse 19, to enter the holy place, not by the blood of bulls, not by the blood of lambs, but by who? By the blood of Jesus Christ. The veil being torn is a picture of Christ's physical body being torn. And notice, if you, if you go look at what the scripture says, it says that the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. Who tore it? God did. The Father tore it. The Father ran and ripped the curtain by the blood of Christ, by a sacrificial death, so that, spiritually speaking, today, you and I could go into the Holy of Holies. You can go into the Father's throne room through worship, through prayer. You have access, not because you're a good person, or not because you've done all these religious rituals, but because of the blood of Christ, we have access to the throne room. What makes us holy? What makes you holy? What makes me holy? It's not my good works. It's not my actions. It's not my deeds. It's nothing that you can see on me. It's the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23 and John chapter 19. Let's continue. We're going to look into this weekend to understand the resurrection and the glorious good news of it. Um, we need to see everything that took place. Let's, let's, let's look at some things that took place between his death and the resurrection. Luke chapter 23 and John chapter 19 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus removed the body, removed Jesus' body from the cross, and they placed him in a tomb. What was that like? What was that like? The scripture doesn't tell us. We, we can only imagine what they experienced, but what was it like to remove the lifeless, cold hands of Christ from the cross? What did they use to uh, get the nails out? Did they use a wrecking bar to pop the nails out, or did they just pull his hands off? His feet, what did they do? But we do know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were there, so they were there. They were holding the body of Christ. They were removing the sacrifice. They were removing the Lamb of God. The scripture also tells us that not only did they remove it, but they prepared his body for burial, and they laid him in a borrowed tomb. That tells us what? They had to remove the crown of thorns. What would it have been like to look at the lifeless body of our Savior, the bruised, battered face of our Savior? This wasn't a joyous moment for them. It was a very hard weekend. It was a very difficult weekend for what the disciples went through. It was very difficult. And then on top of that, this is half, this has taken place on Friday evening. The next day was what? The Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. And the only thing the disciples could do was to sit, think, and ponder the events of Friday. This day was probably worse than Friday. It all sunk in. It was not a bad dream. They probably pinched themselves. What has happened? But it did happen. Their hope was dashed. Their faith was crushed. Shock and confusion had taken over. What they had witnessed on that Friday, the disciples, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, all those surrounding, what they had witnessed for all those who had put in their hope in Christ, they heard these magnificent words. 
from the Sermon on the Mount to John chapter 14 where he talks about heaven to the teaching on the Holy Spirit. Everything that they had heard went down with Christ because he's dead. He's he's dead and he's laid in a borrowed tomb. Do you see a problem? Do you see a problem when I said Christianity? Everything that Christ said at Calvary on that weekend, it represents Christianity. But in the eyes of the disciples, everything that they had heard Christ say on the cross, everything they heard him say on the evening before the crucifixion, everything they heard him say on the Sermon on the Mount, there's a problem with this. He's dead. He's dead. And a word or a promise spoken is only as good as the person speaking it. You know, if the person's passed away, their words pass away too. And Christ made some awesome promises. He made some bold statements. So what stands behind all those statements? Do we just take it at the do we just listen to what he said and take his word? But I'm I'm thinking in a disciple's mind frame of that weekend, but he's dead. All those words don't sink in like they would. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the passage that we read in the opening. And we're going to see this glorious validation of everything Christ said. Everything Christ spoke in the Gospels. Everything he said at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, everything he said to his disciples, all the healings, all the supernatural things, all the miraculous things, they're all 100% true because of what we're fixing to read. Matthew chapter 28. Let's look at it again. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene And the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and he became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. Here it is. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. Notice what it says in verse 8. It says, They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. They went up there sad. They went up there heartbroken. They went up there distraught. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Could this really be true? Oh, my. Oh, my. They're they're getting excited because now they're seeing the big picture like we do when we get saved. Everything he said, all the parables, everything he taught. It was coming back to them. He's risen from the dead. This is the real deal. Verse 8. 
Yes, verse 8. And they, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. At the beginning of my message, I said, what's the point of the resurrection? And I said, the resurrection is this. It validates that everything Jesus said is true. 100%. You can trust it. You can trust him, and you can bank your life on it. Everything. That's why we study the Bible at Calvary Chapel so much. We love studying the scriptures because there's all these promises. There's all these truths that we can take in, and then we can absorb. Why? Because he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. The, the, the point of the resurrection is it validates everything he said. It validates forgiveness. It, it validates that heaven is a real place. It validates that, that our God, the unseen eternal God who dwells in eternity, is a compassionate God. He is a loving God. He is a caring God. His resurrection from the dead validates that the price for our sin was paid in full. The resurrection is the validation of everything that took place on the cross for our salvation. The resurrection is the validation that our Savior gave it all. He gave everything, and it's a validation that our God is faithful, as Jesus pointed out in that final statement. And ultimately, for God's glory and God's glory alone, the resurrection of Jesus uh, states this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That that man who walked this earth 2,000 years ago on the dusty roads of Israel and died on the cross and rose from the grave and performed these miracles and healed the sick and, and did everything he did, it validates that he is Lord. He is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, there's ten commandments, and one of them is not brought forward in the New Testament. Do you know which one it is? It's the, um, the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why? Because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Everything that the Old Testament pointed to was pointing us forward to Christ. He is Lord of all. When we gather on Sunday mornings for fellowship, we, we gather, I like to call it the Lord's Day, the, the day that he rose from the grave every Sunday, and we worship him. But we don't worship on the Sabbath because Jesus Christ is our Sabbath. That's what, this is what Jesus offers. This is the invitation to salvation to all people. Is that, it's everything that's required of a person to be saved is found in this 72-hour period that a person repents of their sin. In other words, you turn away from the old life. This is what salvation is. You turn away from the old life. It's called repentance. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you believe in your heart that Jesus paid the price for you at Calvary. He died on the cross for you. That's what faith is, is believing in that and then you also affirm with Scripture and believe that the Father raised him from the dead. You know, so it's like the cross, you know, when I think about the cross, I think about my sin. And that Jesus paid the price for it. 
And now today, Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has paid the price. And then I look at the resurrection, and I think life. Eternal life. The fear of death is gone. I know where I'll spend eternity. There's peace of mind in that. There's peace of mind in that. But I want to bring to your attention, look at one more time, verse 9. That's what Christ offers us. That's what he offers you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to look closely at verse 9. It says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. My question for you this morning, I ask every person, especially if you're not a believer, have you taken hold of Jesus Christ? Have you taken hold of him? Have you looked upon him by faith? Have you looked at his great sacrifice at Calvary? Have you looked at this glorious biblical truth of his resurrection? You know, it's not just enough to assert to the truthfulness of Christianity in our mind, but there comes a heart change that's required. There comes a surgery that's got to take place in our hearts. It says there in verse 9 that they, uh, they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Question number two, have you bowed in worship? Have you bowed in worship before the Son of God? And said, Lord, I believe. Even if you're having doubts or, unbe- or, or unbelief, just say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Bow in reverence and worship. Surrender to him. And finally, have you taken hold of Christ? Have you bowed in worship for him? Uh, have you surrendered your life to him? That's what Christianity is. It's bowing our pride and saying, Lord, I'm no longer trusting in myself, in my way of thinking, in my way of life, but I'm going to put my trust in you. Have you done that? That, my friend, is what Christ offers all people. He offers them, it's an invitation for salvation. That's what this, that's what this weekend represents. Have you made that commitment to Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? Uh, I like to say salvation is like a coin. It's got two sides. It's, you're living one way, you're walking one way. You repent. I'm turning away from the old life. Sin, lying, lusting, the old way of thinking, everything, I'm turning away from it. And the other side of the coin is faith, where you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? That's the meaning of Easter. That's what, that's what it all comes down to. If you haven't, I want to give you an invitation this morning to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to bow before him. You know, he, 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 he welcomes you. God delights. Jesus looked down. He's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God delights in forgiving people. He delights in exercising compassion. He delights in exercising mercy. That's the invitation. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the truth of this weekend. This weekend, what took place at Calvary in the empty tomb is an invitation to all men 
and women to come and follow you and die to themselves and find their forgiveness at the cross and find their new life at the resurrection. With all the heads bowed, if that's you this morning and you say, you know what, I'm not right with God. I need to experience what took place on this weekend long ago. I want to ask you to slip your hand up and I'm going to pray for you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? The Bible says this, guys. You can look up. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not about joining a church membership. It's not about giving money. It's not about anything else but you getting right with him. Amen? So salvation is like, like I said, it's like a coin. You repent and you believe and you put your trust in him. If that was you and you want to know more about becoming a Christian, as the worship team closes with this worship song, there'll be some prayer counselors in the back. And if you would like to know more about Christ and beginning that new relationship with him, as they're singing this worship song, I just encourage you to slip out your seat and come back and we'll pray for you and we'll talk to you more about Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Let us walk out of here celebrating it, Lord, that you've forgiven our sins and that you've given us new life by your resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.